Section 22 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 12, Taken Back to Persia, Part 1. The governor of Herat sends Kylie salams and permission for me to ride the bicycle, stipulating that I keep near the escort. So, with many an injunction to me about dasht adam, ku, dag, etc., by way of warning me against venturing too far ahead, we bid farewell to the garden, with its strange associations, in the early morning. Beside Mohammed Azim Khan and myself are three sowars, mounted on splendid horses. The morning is bright and cheerful, and shortly after starting the animal spirits of the sowars find vent in song. I have been laboring under the impression that, for soul-harrowing vocal effort, the wild-eyed sowars of Khorasan, as exemplified in my escort from Birjand, were entitled to the worst execrations of a discriminating Ferengi. But the Afghans can go them one better. If it is possible to imagine anything in the whole world of sound more jarring and discordant than the united efforts of these Afghan sowars, I have never yet discovered it. Out of pure consideration and courtesy, I endure it for some little time. But they finally reach a high searching key that is positively unendurable, and I am compelled in sheer self-protection to beg the Khan to suppress their exuberance. These men are not bulbuls. Then why do they sing? Is all that is necessary for me to say. They all laugh heartily at the remark, and the Khan orders them to sing no more. Over a country that consists chiefly of trailless hills and intervening strips of desert, we wend our weary way, the bicycle often providing more of a drag than a benefit. The weather gets insufferably hot. In places, the rocks fairly shimmer with heat, and are so hot that one can scarce hold the hand to them. We camp for the first night at a village, and on the second at an umbar that suggests our approach to Persia, and in the morning we make an early start with the object of reaching Kariz before evening. The day grows warm apace, and at ten miles the Khan calls a halt for the discussion of what simple refreshments we have with us. Our larder embraces dry bread and cold goat meat and a few handfuls of raisins. It ought also to include water in the leathern bottle swinging from the stirrup of one of the sowars. But when we halt, it is to discover that this worthy has forgotten to fill his bottle. The way has been heavy for a bicycle, trundling wearily through sand, mainly, with no riding to speak of and young as is the day, I am well-nigh overcome with thirst and weariness. I am too thirsty to eat, and miserably tired and disgusted, one gets an instructive lesson in the control of the mind over the body. Much of my fatigue comes of low spirits, born of disappointment at being conducted back into Persia. One of the sowars is dispatched ahead to fill his bottle with water at a well known to be some five miles farther ahead, and to meet us with it on the way. On through the sand and heat we plod wearily, myself almost sick with thirst, fatigue, and disgust. 
Mohammed Azim Khan, observing my wretched condition, insists upon me letting one of the sowars try his hand at trundling the wheel, while I rest myself by riding his horse. Both the sowars bravely try their best to relieve me, but they cut ridiculous figures, toppling over every little while. At length, one of them upsets the bicycle into a little gully, and, falling on it, snaps asunder two spokes. The Khan gives him a good tongue-lashing for his carelessness, but one can hardly blame the fellow, and I take it under my own protection again, before it goes farther and fares worse. About 2 p.m. the sowar sent forward meets us with water, but it is almost undrinkable. Far better luck awaits us, however, farther along. Sighting an Imuk camel rider in the distance, one of the sowars gives chase and halts him until we can come up. Slung across his camel, he has a skin of doki, the most welcome thing one can wish for under the circumstances. Everybody helps himself liberally of the refreshing beverage, shrinking the Imuk's supply very perceptibly. The Imuk joins heartily with our party in laughing at the altered contour of the pliant skin, as pointed out jocularly by Mohammed Azim Khan, bids us salam aleikum, and pursues his way across the country. During the afternoon we cross several well-worn trails, though evidently but little used of late, they have seen much travel. My escort explains that they are Daman trails, in other words, the trails worn by Turkoman traders passing back and forth on their man-stealing expeditions before their subjugation by the Russians. By and by we emerge from a belt of low hills and descend into a broad level plain. A few miles off to the right can be seen the hairy rood, its sinuous course plainly outlined by a dark fringe of jungle. Some miles ahead, the village fortress of Kafir Kaleh is visible. A horseman comes galloping across the plain to intercept us. Mohammed Azim Khan produces his written orders concerning my delivery at Kariz and reads it to the new arrival. Thereupon ensues a long explanation which ends in our turning about and following the newcomer across the trailless plain toward the hairy rood. What's up now, I wonder? But the only intelligible reply I get in reply to queries is that we are going to camp in the jungle. Misgivings as to possible foul play mingle with speculations regarding this person's mission as I follow in the wake of the Afghans. We camp on a plot of rising ground that elevates us above the overflow, and shortly after our arrival we are visited by a band of nomads who are hunting through the jungle with greyhounds. Mohammed Azim Khan informs me that both bobs and palangs, panthers, are to be found along the hairy rood. Luxuriant beds of the green stuff known in the United States as lamb's quarter abound, and I put one of the sowars to gathering some with the idea of cooking it for supper. None of our party know anything about its being good to eat, and Mohammed Azim Khan shakes his head vigorously in token of disapproval. A nomad visitor, however, corroborates my statement about its edibleness, and fills our chief with wonderment that I should know something in common with an Afghan nomad that he, a resident of the country, knows nothing about. By way of stimulating his wonderment still further, I proceed to call off the names of the various nomad tribes inhabiting Afghanistan together with their locations. "'Where did you learn all this?' he queries, evidently suspicious that I have been picking up altogether too much information. 
London,' I reply. "'London,' he says. "'Mashallah, they know everything at London.' The horseman who intercepted us rode away when we camped for the night. Nothing more was seen of him, and at a late hour I turn in for the night, if one can be said to turn in when the process takes the form of stretching oneself out on the open ground. No explanation of our detention here has been given me during the evening, and, as I lay down to sleep, all sorts of speculations are indulged in, varying from having my throat cut before morning to a reconsideration by the authorities of the orders sending me back to Persia. Sometime in the night I am awakened. A strange horseman has arrived in camp with a letter for me. He wears the uniform of a military courier. The sowars make a blaze of brushwood fire for me to read by. It is a letter from Mr. Merck, the political agent of the Boundary Commission. It is a long letter, full of considerate language, but no instructions affecting the orders of my escort. Mr. Merck explains why Mahmoud Yusuf Khan could not take the responsibility of allowing me to proceed to Kandahar. The population of Zemindavar, he points out, are particularly fanatical and turbulent, and I should very probably have been murdered, etc. The march toward Kariz is resumed in good season in the morning. What was that? A cuckoo? At first I can scarcely believe my own senses. The idea of cuckoos calling in the jungle of Afghanistan being about the last thing I should have expected to hear never having read of travellers hearing them anywhere in central asia nor yet having heard them myself before but there is no mistake for ere we pass kafir Kaleh, i hear the familiar notes again and again the road is a decided improvement over anything we have struck since leaving herat and by noon we arrive at kariz for some inexplicable reason the sultan of kariz receives our party with very ill grace he looks sick and is probably suffering from fever which may account for the evident sourness of his disposition mohammed azim khan is anything but pleased at our reception and as soon as he receives the receipt for my delivery makes his preparations to return i don't think the sultan even tendered my escort a feed of grain for their horses a piece of inhospitality wholly out of place in this wild country. As for myself, he simply orders a villager to supply me with food and quarters, and charge me for it. Mohammed Azim Khan comes to my quarters to bid me good-bye, and he takes the opportunity to explain this is Iran, not Afghanistan. Iran, pool. Afghanistan, pool, nice there is no need of explanation however the people rubbing their fingers eagerly together and crying pool pool when i ask for something to eat tells me plainer than any explanations that i am back again among our pool loving friends the subjects of the shah as i bid mohammed azim khan farewell i feel almost like parting from a friend he is a good fellow and with nine-tenths of his inquisitiveness suppressed, would make a very agreeable companion. And so, here I am, within a hundred and sixty miles of Meshed, again. More than a month has flown past since I last looked back upon its golden dome. It has been an eventful month. My experiences have been exceptional and instructive, but i ought now to be enjoying the comforts of the english camp at quetta instead of halting overnight in the mud-huts of the surly sultan of kariz
the female portion of Karee society makes no pretense of covering up their faces which impresses me the more as i have seen precious little of female faces since entering afghanistan all the women of Karees are ugly, a fact that I attribute to the handsomest specimens being carried off to Bokhara for decades past by the Turkomans. The people that assemble to gaze upon me are the same sore-eyed crowd that characterizes most Persian villages, and among them is one man totally blind. The loss of sight has not dimmed his inquisitiveness any, however, nothing could do that, and he gets someone to lead him into my room, where he makes an exhaustive examination of the bicycle with his hands. A village luti entertains me during the evening with a dancing deer, a comical affair of wood made to dance on a table by jerking a string. The hootie plays a sort of wanga-doodle tune on a guitar and manipulates the string so as to make the deer keep time to the tune he tells me he obtained it from hindustan among the wiseacres gathered around me plying questions is one who asks chand menzel's inja to london he wants to know how many marches or stopping places there are between Karees and london this is a fair illustration of what these people think the world is like his idea of a journey from here to london is that of stages across a desert country like persia from one caravanserai to another beyond that conception these people know nothing london they think would be some such place as herat or meshed at the hour of my departure from Karees, on the following morning a little old man presents himself and wants me to employ him as an escort the old fellow is a shrivelled-up little bit of a man whom i could well-nigh hold out at arm's length and lift up with one hand not feeling the need of either guide or guard particularly i decline the old fellow's services with thanks and push on happy in fact to find myself once more untrammelled by native company Small towers of refuge dotting the plain quickly about Karees tell of past depredations by the Turkomans. An outlying village like Karees must, indeed, have had a hard struggle for existence, right in the heart of the Daman country, too. For miles, the plain is found to be grassy as the western prairies, an innovation from the dreary gray of the camel-thorn dasht that is quite refreshing. A stream or two has to be forded, and many Afghans are met returning from pilgrimage to Meshed. The village of Torbet-e-Sheikh Jam is reached at noon, a pleasant town containing many shade trees. Here, I find, resides Abduranzak Khan, a sub-agent of Mirza Abbas Khan, and, consequently, a servant of the Indian government. He is one of the frontier agents whose duty it is to keep track of events in a certain section of country and report periodically to headquarters. He, of course, receives me hospitably, does the agreeable with tea and kalians, and provides substantial refreshments. The soothing Shirazi tobacco provided with his kalians and the excellent quality of his tea provoke me to make comparison between them and the wretched productions of Afghanistan. The Abdurazak laughs good-humouredly at my remark, and replies, Mashallah, there is nothing good in Afghanistan. He isn't far from right, and the English officer who named the products of Afghanistan as stones and fighting men came equally near the truth. 
Fair roads prevail for some distance after leaving torbet e Sheik jam A halt is made at an Eliud camp to refresh myself with a bowl of doke. A picturesque dervish emerges from one of the tents and presents his alms receiver with huk ya huk. Both man and voice seem familiar, and after a moment I recognize him as a familiar figure upon the streets of Tehran last winter. He says he is going to Kabul and Kandahar. A unique feature of his makeup is a staff with a bayonet fixed on the end in place of the usual club or battle axe. The night is spent in an Eliout camp. New moods seem scarce articles with them, and I spend a cold and uncomfortable night, scarcely sleeping a wink. The camp is not far from the village of Mahmoudabad, and a rowdy gang of ryots come over to camp in the middle of the night, having heard of my arrival. From Mahmoudabad, the road follows up a narrow valley with a range of hills running parallel on either hand. The southern range are quite respectable mountains, with lingering patches of snow, and, can it be possible, even a few scattering pines. Pines, and, for that matter, trees of any kind, are so scarce in this country that one can hardly believe the evidence of his own eyes when he sees them. On past the village of Carizino, my road leads, passing through a hard, gravelly country, the surface of generally affording fair riding except for a narrow belt of sand hills. At Carizino, a glimpse is obtained of our old acquaintances, the Elbers Mountains, near Shah Rifabad. They are observed to be somewhat snow-covered still, though to a measurably less extent than they were when we last viewed them on the road to Torbeti. The approach of evening brings my day's ride to a close at Furaman, a village of considerable size, partially protected by a wall and moat. Stared at by the assembled population, and enduring their eager gabble all the evening, and then a new mood on the roof of a villager's house till morning. The night is cold, and sleeplessness, with shivering body, again rewards me for a long, hard day's journey. But now it is about six farsakhs to Meshed, where, inshallah, a good bed and all kindred comforts await me beneath Mr. Gray's hospitable roof. Ere the forenoon is passed, the familiar gold dome once again appears as a glowing yellow beacon, beckoning me across the Meshed plain. A camel runs away and unseats his rider in deference to his timidity at my strange appearance as I bowl briskly across the Meshed plain at noon. By one o'clock I am circling around the moat of the city, and by two am snugly ensconced in my old quarters, relating the adventures of the last five weeks to Gray, and receiving from him in exchange the latest scraps of European news. I have made the one hundred and sixty miles from Curries in two days and a half, not a bad showing with a bicycle that has been tinkered up by Herati gunsmiths. Among other interesting items of news, it is learned that a hopeful machete blacksmith has been inspired to try his prentice hand at making a bicycle. One would like to have seen that bicycle, but somehow I didn't get an opportunity. Friendly telegrams reach me from Tehran, and also another order from the British legation instructing me not to attempt Afghanistan again. Since my departure from Meshed, southward bound, another wandering correspondent has invaded the holy city. Mr. E., 
special of a great london daily paper whom i had the pleasure of meeting once or twice in teheran has come eastward in an effort to enter afghanistan he has been halted by peremptory orders at meshed disgusted with his ill luck at not being permitted to carry out his plans he is on the eve of returning to constantinople as i am heading for the same point myself we arrange to travel there in company being somewhat under the weather from a recent attack of fever he has contracted for a russian foregone to carry him as far as shahrood the farthest point on our route to which vehicular conveyance is practicable our purpose is to reach the caspian port of bundurguz thence embark on a russian steamer to baku over the caucasus railway to batoon thence by black sea steamer to constantinople on the afternoon of may eighteenth r makes a start with the foregone it is a custom unalterable as the laws of etc with all persians starting on a journey of any length to go a short distance only for the first stage the object of this is probably to find out by actual experience on the road whether anything has been forgotten or overlooked before they get too far away to return and rectify the mistake semi-civilized peoples are wedded very strongly to the customs in vogue among them and the european traveller finds himself compelled more or less to submit to them my intention is to overtake the foregone the following day at sharifabad accordingly soon after sunrise on the morrow the road around the outer moat of meshed is circled once again a middle-aged descendant of the prophet riding a graceful dapple gray mare spurs his steed into a swinging gallop for about five miles across a level plain in an effort to bear me company three miles farther and for miles over the steep and unridable gradients of the shah rifabad hills i may anticipate the delights of having his horse's nose at my shoulder and my heels in constant jeopardy to avoid this i spurt ahead and ere long have the satisfaction of seeing him give it up in the foothills i encounter for the first time one of those characteristics of mohammedan countries and more especially of persia a caravan of the dead thousands of bodies are carried every year on horseback or on camels from various parts of persia to be buried in holy ground at meshed kerbela or mecca the corpses are bound about with canvas and slung like bales of merchandise one on either side of the horse the stench from one of these corpse caravans is something fearful nothing more nor less than the horrible stench of putrid human bodies and yet the drivers seem to mind it very little indeed one stout horse in the party i meet this morning carries two corpses and in the saddle between them rides a woman mashallah perchance those very bodies between which she sits perched so indifferently are the remains of smallpox victims but what cares the woman is she not a mohammedan and a female one at that and does she not believe in kismet what cares she for ferangi sanitary fads if it is her kismet to take the smallpox she will take it if it is her kismet not to she won't one would think however that common sense and common prudence would instruct these people to imitate the excellent example of the chinese in taking measures to dispose of the flesh before transporting the bones to distant burial places 
many of the epidemics of disease that decimate the populations of eastern countries and sometimes travel into the west originate from these abominable caravans of the dead and kindred irrationalities of the illogical and childlike oriental as the golden dome of imam riza's sanctuary glimmers upon my retreating figure yet a fourth time as i reach the summit of the hill whence we first beheld it i breathe a silent hope that i may never set eyes on it again the foregone is overtaken as agreed upon at sharifabad and after an hour's halt we conclude to continue on to the caravanserai where it will be remembered my friend the haji and mazanderan dervish and myself found shelter from the blizzard b's turkish servant abdul a handy fellow speaking three or four languages and numbering among other accomplishments the knack of always having on hand plenty of cold chicken and mutton is a vast improvement upon obtaining food direct from the villagers resting here till two a m we make a moonlight march to gadamga arriving there for breakfast the trail is a revelation of smoothness in comparison to my expectations based upon its condition a few weeks ago the moon is about full and gives a light as it only does in persia and one can see to ride the parallel camel paths very successfully persians are very much given to night travelling and as i ride well ahead of the foregone the strange weird object gliding noiselessly along through the moonlight fills many a superstitious pilgrim with misgivings that he has caught a glimpse of shaitan i can hear them rapidly muttering Allah, as they edge off the road and hurry along on their way. Many Arabs from the lower Euphrates Valley are now mingled with the pilgrim throngs en route to Meshed. They are evil-looking customers, black as Negroes almost. They look capable of any atrocity under the sun. These Arab pilgrims are hajis, almost to a man, coming, as they do, from much nearer Mecca than the Persians but their holiness does not prevent them bearing the unenviable reputation of being the most persistent thieves abdul knows them well and when any of them are about keeps a sharp lookout to see that none of them approach our things on the following evening at a caravanserai near nishapur we meet and spend the night with a french scientific party of three sent out by the paris geographical society to make geographical and geological researches at turkestan the three frenchmen are excellent company they entertain us with european news their views on the political aspect and of incidents on their foregone journey from tiflis among their charvadars is a man who saw me last autumn at Ovajik. Much good riding surface prevails, and we pass the night of the 21st at Lafaram. The crowds that everywhere gather about us are very annoying to K, whose fever and consequent weakness is hardly calculated to sweeten his temper under trying circumstances. A whole swarm of women gather to stare at us at Lafaram. I'll soon scatter them anyway, says R, and he reaches for a pair of binoculars hanging up in the foregone. Adjusting them to his eyes, he levels them at the bunch of females, expecting to see them scatter like a flock of partridges. Scattering is evidently about the last thing the women are thinking of doing, however. They merely turn their attention to the binoculars and concentrate their comments upon them, instead of on other of our effects, for the moment but that is all. 
In the vicinity of Subzowar, we find the people engaged in harvesting the crop of opium. The way they do it is to go through the fields of poppy every morning and scarify the green heads with a knife blade notched for the purpose, like a saw. During the day, the milky juice oozes out and solidifies. In the evening, the harvesters pass through the fields again, scrape off the exuded opium, and collect it in vessels. This, after the watery substance has been worked out with frequent kneadings and drying, is the opium of commerce. The chief opium emporium of Persia is Shiraz, where buyers ship it by camel caravan to Bushar for export. Persian opium commands the topmost prices in foreign markets. Here, every idler about the villages seems to be amusing himself by working a ball of opium about in his hands, much as a boy delights in handling a chunk of putty. Lumps as large as the fist are freely offered me by friendly people, as they would hand one a piece of bread or a pomegranate. I might collect pounds of the stuff by simply taking what is offered me without the asking. In the caravanserai at Miandashat, Abdul's failure to appreciate our whilom and egotistical friend, the Ladida Telegraph G, at his own valuation, comes near resulting in a serious fracas. One of Abdul's most valued services is keeping at a respectful distance the crowds of villagers that invariably swarm about us when we halt. In doing this, he sometimes flogs about him pretty lively with the whip. As a general thing, the natives take this sort of thing in the greatest good humor. In fact, rather enjoy it than otherwise. At Miandashat, however, Abdul's whip happens to fall rather heavily upon the shoulders of the telegraph G's Farash, who is in the crowd. This individual, reflecting something of his master's self-esteem, takes exceptions to this and complains, with the customary Persian elaboration, no doubt, to the consequential head of the place. The consequence is that a gang of villagers, headed by the telegraph G himself, gather around and suddenly attack poor Abdul with clubs. Except for the prompt assistance of R and myself, he would have been mauled pretty severely. As it is, he gets bruised up rather badly, though he inflicts almost as much damage as he receives with a hatchet hastily grabbed from the foregone. The fact of his being a Turk, whom the Persians consider far less holy than themselves, Abdul explains, accounts for the attack on him as much as anything else. A new surprise awaits us at Mijamid, something that we are totally unprepared for. As we reach the Chapar Khana there, a voice from the roof greets us with, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Looking up in astonishment, we behold Colonel G., a german officer in the shah's army whom both of us are familiarly acquainted with by sight from seeing him so often at the morning reviews in the military maiden at teheran but this is not all for with him are his wife and daughter this is the first time european ladies have traversed the meshed teheran road teheran being the farthest point eastward in persia that lady travellers have heretofore penetrated to Colonel G. has been appointed to the staff of the new Governor-General of Khorasan, and is on his way to Meshed. The appearance of Ferengi ladies in the Holy City will be an innovation that will fairly eclipse the introduction of the bicycle. All Meshed will be wild with curiosity, and the poor ladies will never be able to venture into the streets without disguise. 
There is fewer enough over them in Mijamid. The whole population is assembled en masse before the Shapar Khana. The combination of the bicycle, three Ferengis, and above all, two Ferengi ladies, is an event that will form a red-letter mark in the history of Mijamid for generations of unborn Persian riots to talk about and wonder over. The colonel produces a bottle of excellent Shiraz wine and a box of Russian cigarettes. The ladies have become sufficiently orientalized to number among their accomplishments the smoking of cigarettes. They are delighted at meeting us, and are already acquainted with the main circumstances of my misadventure in Afghanistan. Camp stools are brought out, and we spend a most pleasant hour together before continuing on our opposite courses. The wandering natives are almost speechless with astonishment at the spectacle of the two ladies sitting out there, faces all uncovered, smoking cigarettes, sipping claret, and chatting freely with the men. It is a regular circus day for these poor, unenlightened mortals. The ladies are charming, and the charm of female society loses nothing, but the reader may be sure from once having been deprived of it for a matter of months. The colonel's lingual preference is German. Mrs. G.'s French and the daughter's English, so that we are quite cosmopolitan in the matter of speech. All of us know enough Persian to express ourselves in that language, too. In commenting upon my detention by the Afghans, the colonel characterizes them as Pedar Shaitans, Madame as Le Diable Afghans, and Miss G. as well, Le Diable, in plain yet charmingly broken English. End of section 22. Recording by William Tomko.